Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories. I'm Sophia Olds. I am a member of the U.S. Army Reserves. I have been in the military for 17 years now. 12 years I spent in the Florida Army National Guard, and I was AGR, Active Guard Reserve, for seven of those years. I joined when I was 20 years old. At the time, my boyfriend, who's now my husband, he was also in the Florida Army National Guard, and I just saw all the excitement that he enjoyed, the money he had, the travel, the camaraderie, and I wanted to be a part of something bigger than myself and the little town that I grew up in. So I joined mainly for those reasons. And I just did not expect that I would stay in for so long. Even after he got out, after 13 years, I still remained. So I'm still ticking along and going to make it to those 20 years, if not longer, and retire someday. That's awesome. So what is your current rank then? I am a staff sergeant, E6. Okay. And that is a long story. I have been on a trail. I have also, I've been to officer candidate school. I've been to warrant officer candidate school. And I guess it's just meant for me to stay enlisted. <laughs> so when I first joined, I always wanted to be an officer. Um, I have a degree. I have a master's degree in social work. And everyone I always thought, oh, O's is going to be the next officer in the unit. So it was kind of prepped and prepared for me to do that. When I went AGR, I want to stay in the AGR field because I was a supply sergeant, a E6 unit supply sergeant. And I just decided, you know, it's, it's time for me to do something different. So I decided to go to OCS. I was accepted into OCS. It was the course where it's actually 18 months where you go one weekend out of yeah. the month for a whole 18 months. And at the time I was in school for my master's degree. I was preparing for a deployment to Afghanistan with my unit and I was in OCS. So honestly, I was overwhelmed. And I was like, I just do not want to do this. When I would have drill with my units on the weekend, I would have to be at drill with my unit as a supply star, as full-time AGR staff. But then when I would have to go to OCS, that was a whole nother weekend. I would have to be at OCS. And I had schoolwork. So I was, it just, it was just so much. And I just felt it was best that I didn't continue on. So I actually resigned from OCS because it was just too overwhelming and I just didn't see myself giving up my AGR job at the time. So I didn't think it was as important um, right then. Um, OCS for me was a very strenuous uh, time because I had some underlying health conditions. I was anemic. So it was just so much of tearing down of the body. And of course, you know, when your body's torn down mentally, emotionally, you start feeling the same way. And I did not want to continue that. So I felt it was best that I 
resign from that. And to make it even worse, I don't know, worse, better, whatever you want to call it. When I resigned, I was told by the commander that I was targeted from the beginning. So they were really rough on me when I was in OCS because they knew I was AGR. They knew I was a supply sergeant and they knew I had degrees and I was a female. So they were really tough on me. And they told me from the the beginning that they targeted me and they wanted to see how tough I was. And I'm not going to say they broke me, but they got me to the point where I was like, I just can't do this right now. It's just not good for me physically, mentally, emotionally, none of that. So can uh I ask you how, how far into the program were you when you resigned and what kinds of things would have, I guess, helped you feel more supported? What kinds of things would have made a difference? I had just completed the initial two-week training. So the one of the harder parts of the training, you start off and you do a couple of weekends there like on post. And then you go out for a two-week like AT. So I probably was four or five months in. And, 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 I, and I would add too, and maybe you can talk just a little bit about the fact that Every basically at any moment, your instructors in OCS can say, "Okay, we're going to do a PT test." Yes. I mean, whatever they want to do, basically, you know, you're kind of, you kind of have to do whatever it is they they tell you they're going to do. Correct. I think to be more supported, maybe I could have been more prepared um, on the side of maybe my unit talking to me, or I could have maybe talked more to soldiers who had been to OCS, which I had, but I know it's different from everyone. Um, I just think it was just my own experience of me being physically like downtrodden (laughs) because of my physical. I've always been told I look really young for my age. And so people automatically think when you look a certain way, you're supposed to perform a certain way. So I feel like that worked against me because here they are thinking that, oh, she's just some little 20 something year old. I I was in my 30s when I went. So I wasn't some young, you know, who had just gotten into the military. Uh, So maybe preparing myself more physically and realizing that, you know, Sophie, maybe it's not time right now. I actually had just had a miscarriage in March and I went to a training in June. So I don't think physically my body was ready, but I already had done all the paperwork and it was planned for me to go. So I didn't want to, you know, go back on my word. I felt I could handle it. So I probably could have did a little bit more prepping and preparing myself. But I just want to make sure I understand. So you said you you were doing OCS. You were working uh-huh. on your master's. Correct. You had just had a miscarriage. Yes. Um, at what? When was there time for you to do more to prepare? <laughs> well, I guess it wasn't. And I guess that's why I realized that this is not for me right now. So... I've always been one of those people who go, go, go. Like even right now, my husband and I, that's just how we are. Uh, So I guess it just wasn't something for me to do at that time. I didn't have enough time in my life for it, I guess. And definitely right now, I feel like I don't have time for it. So that's why I don't see myself going back to OCS. Because I told my husband, the only way I will commission these days is if I direct commission. Because I'm not going through that again. I'm a lot older now. And I don't want to go through it. Can you can you describe for people who've never been in the military what that process is like? What 
OCS, what that entails, what you were kind of doing every single day? Gotcha. So OCS is a lot like basic training. When you first come into the military, you go to a basic combat training. It's where you do a lot of physical activities. So every day you're doing exercises, um, you're doing road marches, and you're not just marching with your body. You're marching with a, a weapon with 40, 50 pounds on your back on a rucksack, um, in a rucksack. Uh, you're doing PT tests sporadically. Uh, you're doing training as to where corrective training so if you do something incorrectly if you do something wrong if you perform a task incorrectly they have you do corrective training so they may, might make you do some additional push-ups some additional sit-ups some additional uh cherry pickers whatever kind of exercise squat thrust anything that they can think of uh crawling in the mud uh crawling across football fields they'll turn the sprinklers on uh, take your water bottles and throw your water bottles across a field and tell you to low crawl to them in a hundred degree weather. Is so it, is it co-ed? Is OCS it is. Was, it was. Yes, mine was. So unlike basic training, um, you know, OCS is, is co-ed. So everybody's getting the same thing. Correct. And I went to basic training with male, female. So I've always done co-ed for all of my military training. Um, in my opinion, OCS was worse than basic training. Uh, and I think that's because first off, I was older. That makes a difference physically. Um, mentally, it made a difference because when you're younger, you're just used to obeying and doing and not really trying to understand why. And I was a private when I joined. But when I went to OCS, I was an E6. And they know that. The tacs know that. Your instructors know your rank. They know how long you've been in. They know your background. So they try to work at really breaking you to make sure that you're humble. So they do extra to really make sure that you can perform and that you're not someone who will get snappy back with them, who will lose their military bearing. So it's a lot more of a mind game because they want to see or that, see that you can perform under stress and that you can, you know, hold your military band and be professional despite whatever they throw at you. Sophia, can we just back up just a little bit and tell me what did your family think or what did they say when you told them that you were going to join the military? I remember my family saying, you didn't even like to play sports in high school. And that's true. I never played any sports in high school. Nothing. I never was the athletic type at all. Uh, so they were a little like, hmm, I don't know about that. But my mom has always been extremely supportive of me, no matter what. She's very spiritual. So she's always been the type that would just let me go and just pray me through and talk me through. So I didn't have a lot of backlash from her. And that's really the only person who I cared about, like their opinion, like, you know, cousins or, you know, I really was like, oh, you don't know any better. You've never been. So with my mom, she was just extremely supportive. My dad kind of was like, I can't believe you let our baby go to the military. But when I joined, I was 20 years old. I wasn't married yet, but I was 20. So I technically was an adult um, and I was taking care of myself. I wasn't I was preparing to be married to my high school sweetheart. So I was pretty, you know, adult-like when I joined. Mm -hmm. How was it my, different? 
How is it different, um, what you thought the military was going to be to what it actually turned out to be? You know, I didn't even think what the military would be like, honestly. I joined out of love for my boyfriend at the time and love for adventure and to do better, to do something with my life. So honestly, I didn't even think about what it was going to be like. It was more so when I got into it, I realized that, hey, this is something serious. This is not a game. You know, because I deployed within a year of joining, I deployed to Iraq with my husband, actually. So I really didn't know what to expect with the, with the military, besides the fact that I would travel and I would go to some schools and I would do some running and some sit ups and some push ups. I didn't look beyond that. Like I said, I was young at the time. So take us through that. When did you get married and how close in proximity was that to your first deployment? I got married in 2004. I joined the military in 2003, got married in 2004, uh, May. And I deployed. I had to show up two days after I got married to prepare for deployment. Oh, my God. Two days. (laughs) Two days. So, literally, I was supposed to get married May the 29th. And I found out from some friends in college they said, you haven't gotten married yet? I was like, no. They was like, girl, we're about to deploy overseas. I said, what? And I called my unit, and they said, yes, report here on Monday. And this was probably like a Tuesday. So I got married that weekend. <laughs> and the, on a Saturday, it reported to the unit on a Monday. Did it? Was it difficult to be deployed uh, with your spouse, or did that help? That helped most definitely that helped us because I had never been away from home. I had never been on a plane before. I'm from a small town, a little country girl. I grew up humble beginnings. So to have him there, to have a support system there, somebody I've known my whole life, uh, definitely made it a lot better. Both of us come from really large families. Uh, I don't think our marriage will be as strong as it is today if we hadn't deployed together. Because getting married at a young age, you know, sometimes your families, they have, you know, questions about that. They're not super excited about that. When you're talking about getting married, you don't have a, a house, you don't have a car, you don't have a job. You just want to get married because you love someone. So for us to deploy together and to be able to set a foundation for our marriage and for our life it was definitely a game changer for us because we went over there. I was a truck driver, an 88 Mike. He was a 92 Yankee uh, unit supply specialist, the armor. And we went over there and we, you know, spent as much time together as we could. When I wasn't on the road driving trucks up and down the road from one location to the next, we were hanging out together on post, on the base. And where at in Iraq and when was this? We were in Talil, Iraq, and we actually got to Kuwait because before you go to Iraq first, you go to Kuwait for training. So we went to Kuwait. We got there um, actually on my birthday. I turned 21 in Kuwait. Wow. Yes. (laughs) So my birthday party, I remember I had some noodles. I put the water out on the AC unit outside the tent boiled me some water and made me some noodles yes so that is how i turned 21 um and then we actually crossed over the border to iraq on my husband's birthday october the 7th 
And did, so did you drive across the berm or did you fly? Yes, we did. We drove because I said we were truck drivers. And it was crazy because our trucks from our unit in Mariana, Florida, they were those old five tons. And they shipped those trucks over. And in Kuwait, we up-armored those things ourselves with metal and made turrets out of them. And we drove across. What year was this? This was 2004. Have you experienced in the 17 years, only about 30% of women serve in the military. Um, have you ever experienced any pressure as, as a female soldier? Uh, most definitely. Being in a transportation company, starting off, that's a lot of males. And then, like I said, I was, I was a little small girl. I mean, to get into the military, I had to go back to MEPS. Like, I had to gain, like, 10 pounds. So I was already underweight, small little girl going into the military, driving big trucks with all these big grown men. And then also, when I became a supply sergeant, people will ask me, you want to be a supply sergeant? And I was a supply sergeant at a transportation company. So I wasn't just doing administrative tasks or lifting light things i you know i had a lot to be responsible for a lot of heavy equipment uh so that was pressure because you want to perform you want to do your part but then i've also i've learned to know my limitations and that's grown with me throughout the years so i when i know i can't do it i know it's above me and beyond me and i need assistance i just have to really request that because even though I get it, they want us to perform the same. Sometimes it's not the same. Sometimes as a female, sometimes even as a male, it just depends on the person. You're not able to do some of the same things that, you know, other soldiers are able to do. And I, I would add too, and I was not a supply sergeant, but had friends that were, which is by the way, an important friend to have. Yes. <laughs> but also you basically have, you're responsible for everything. You know, you have to, you sign for everything. Your name is on every hand receipt. Everything. And that automatically is pressure. Because if you lose one piece of equipment, you know, they're shutting everything down. And then that's looking at possibly having to come some out of your check because it's lost. So that was added pressure already. I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. So what would you say to to a, to a young person that was standing outside the recruiting center trying to decide if they should join the military? I would tell them that this is one of the most important decisions that you will ever make in your entire life. Um, that it could mean life or death. Prepare yourself for whatever decision you make. 
I think the pros outweigh the cons most definitely, but you have to choose wisely and choose based upon what you want out of life, not what someone else wants. Hey, I, I wondered how you got into that specialty. Like, did you choose that or did they choose it for you? Well, 88 Mike, they, I chose it for myself mainly because I want to be in a certain unit. I wanted to be in a unit that was close to home. So that was the closest unit to my home. And that was also the unit that my, my husband was in. So I chose that unit and they, it wasn't a lot of choices. It was a transportation company. So you could be an 88 micro truck driver, or you could be a supply 92 Yankee, or you could be a 42 alpha, which was unit administrator or a fueler. So of course the 88 Mike one was the one that they had available. So I chose that. Um, Honestly, one of the best decisions I probably could have made because I've, I grew up with having a fear of driving. Like my bo- my boyfriend, he would drive me around everywhere because I did not want to drive. I, I guess that came from, I don't know, my mom doesn't drive. So I think maybe I saw that and that may put fear also in me. So me joining as 88 Mike was definitely wonderful. I would not change it at all. It definitely has given me the confidence to to drive because I've driven so many different places now and everything. So it was it was needed. And then when it came to Supply Star, I was AGR already as an 88 Mike and I want to move up in rank. So I was an E5. So to make my E6, I I want to stay in the same unit and the position came available for a 92 Yankee Supply Sergeant. And it was already like, O's. if you want this position, you know, you probably would be really good at it. And you probably could get it because you trained already in this section. You know everything about it. You're already here at the unit. So it was kind of lined up for me. As a sergeant, did you feel like the, the people you were in charge of or the people that you worked with, your peers, that they respected you the same way, even though you were a woman? I will say, honestly, I never thought about it because I don't think I could have thought about it because I think it would have made it difficult for me to do my job. When I look back and I think about it, I can see where I would get questions. But for me, because I was so mission driven, I didn't pay that any attention. And because I knew that I had a good support system like my E7, my readiness NCO, my supervisor was 100 percent for me. And because I had a good support system, I had good leadership, I had a good commander, first sergeant, and they knew I could do the job, that it never bothered me, that other males would try to question me. Because when they did try to question me, I could easily spit them off an answer. And then I could also relay that to the commander, first sergeant, my supervisor, and they always had my back. So it wasn't an issue with that, mainly because I have had good leadership the times that I have been in the military. Was it lonely sometimes, though? Um, Most definitely. <laughs> Most definitely lonely. Uh, as supply sergeant, is a lot of times I slept in my supply room all by myself uh, because I want to watch my equipment. Uh, and then, you know, I had a couple soldiers, but, you know, privates, they want to hang out with their private friends. You know, they don't want to hang out with the staff sergeant. And I get that. So definitely, yes. Could be very lonely, uh, but I've always been a loner, so I don't think that was an issue for me. It just helped me perfect my craft even even the more. Uh, completely opposite from right now where I am because I have a degree in social work, so I have to be around people a lot of the times. So it was a big transition for me right there to, to go from being a loner 
to now being in a field where I'm constantly around people. I will tell you though, the, the short time that I was in the uh, Army National Guard, I did not move beyond the rank of E4. And a staff sergeant is really good about finding work for E4s to do. Correct. Yes, we are. <laughs> so, so that's why we avoided them. <laughs> You're right. I, I can see that. I, I will agree. I wonder, um, Sophia, do you think that it gave you any advantages? Did it teach you something about yourself or give you some advantages as a woman? The military, most definitely. The best decision is one of the best decisions I've made. Uh, advantages, I see myself now working in the, the civilian workforce. I work more in the corporate field now. Or even when I was working the state and federal. It's just sometimes when I see the work ethic of some females, I'm just like, wow. And I think a lot of people say to me, well, that's because you're military. That's because you're military. And I'm like, but I just thought that you're supposed to go to work and work and don't whine and complain. And if your boss tells you to do something, then you just do it uh, and that you work as a team and you help each other out. So I think it has just given me a better mindset on how to perform and do my job and not to become overwhelmed. Um, it has taught me definitely how to multitask. Um uh, how to not just be a wife or be a mother, but to be a soldier and to be able to balance all of that. So the military definitely has given me some advantages. Can you tell us a, a little bit about your family and how the military has impacted your family? I know you have a large family. Yes. So my husband and I, we have seven children our children are, uh, uh, they're all adopted. They are a sibling group of seven that we adopted three years ago. We've always wanted to adopt. So when I saw the story on Facebook and it was saying how these seven children were separated in four different homes and they were in search for a home for the holidays, I just immediately knew that, hey, these children, this is for us. And my husband was in agreement. So we started that whole process. And definitely the military prepared me for this, prepared me to be a mother of seven. Um, now, of course, I cook large meals. Uh, I, I shop for several people. I did the same thing in the military as a supply store. I remember going to the grocery stores to, to get food for drill and having two and three buggies. So now I'm so prepared and I'm used to that. And I'm like, oh, this is, I've been doing this for years because I've been managing people for years. I've been managing equipment. So managing seven children, in my opinion, has been uh, a pretty simple task based upon managing all of that equipment. So I've been prepared. A simple task. Yes. Nice. <laughs> I have a hard time believing that. But how old are your kids? What are the age ranges now? Well, my youngest is seven. And then we have a eight, a seven-year-old boy, eight-year-old boy, 11-year-old girl, 12-year-old boy, 13-year-old boy-girl twins, and 15-year-old girl. Oh, my goodness. You have yeah. your hands full. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. I think I might want to watch the equipment. <laughs> Well, you know, honestly, it's all about how you train them. And honestly, they're like little soldiers. So they all have tasks and they know what to do and they know we're a family. So that means we all pull our weight. And that's what makes it so much easier. Because when they came here, we had boundaries, we had guidelines, and we set those at the beginning. And so they already know how things go and how it works. And we all just work together to make it happen. So 
I think that's what makes it the structure that we put in place. And I would not have that structure and that mindset if it had not been for the military. And also my husband was in the military for 13 years. So he has that experience. He's a teacher right now. So he's used to managing children. He's a coach. Uh, He's a children's church pastor. So we've just been prepared all around to be able to love and manage children because that's what our lives have, you know, equipped us with. What would you say to one of your kids if they came to you and said they wanted to join the military? Or would you give them advice on which branch or to join or which job to do? Yes, because we already have one who we're, we're prepping for the military because she said she wants to be in the military like me. Because she sees me put on that uniform and, and go and do and it impresses her. So she says that she wants to be in the military and that's what she wants to do full time. And of course, I am leading and guiding her to the Air Force. Um, it's just a whole different lifestyle and mentality at the Air Force. Uh, I probably would have picked the Air Force, but I, I just picked the Army because my husband was in the Army. But she wants to be uh, in the military. So we're preparing her for that. Um, She's not sure what she wants to do. She's only nine. No, she's 11. So she's 11. So she's not sure. She just knows she wants to be in the military. Awesome. What do you, how do you feel about when uh, people are kneeling sort of in, in sort of calling for racial justice um, or protesting police brutality, that their decision to do that is to kneel during the national anthem. How does that, how do you feel about that personally? Well, I'm all for everybody has their own life to live and it's their right to do whatever they feel is best. So either way for me, if that's what they decide, I respect their choice and their decision because I will want someone to respect mine. I can't say that I would prefer them stand and put their hand over their heart like I would do. I don't judge them for choosing to kneel because they're looking at a greater and bigger cause sometimes than some of us are. They have a reason for it. And even if their reason doesn't make sense to me, I don't think it's my choice and my decision to judge them or to look at them or treat them any differently because they choose to do something different than me. So I just want to tell you, so I met Sophia uh, on social media. I basically just reached out and I said, please, somebody come on and be on the podcast. And, and she responded. Uh, but, I, but since then, I have learned that she has her own podcast. So would you, Sophia, would you take a moment and talk about your podcast? Sure. My podcast is called Sophia's Social Segments. It's a podcast that helps us get more informed and in touch with our youth. It was birthed from my children. They are my inspiration behind my podcast. In my podcast episodes, I look to encourage parents, guardians, mentors, anyone who works alongside children and encourage them in their daily life journeys. So that may be including things like how to forego frustration, some tips and techniques. Like I said, I'm a master's level social worker, so I am working to be a clinical licensed clinical social worker. I'm just waiting to take my state board. So I use a lot of my training and my college that I've learned throughout the years to actually help people. Uh, We talk a lot about real life stories, real life issues that I encounter with my children, raising them. They sometimes appear on the podcast with me. 
So they host or they give me ideas and thoughts and feedback. So it's just first started off as a hobby, something that I enjoy me trying to make sure I keep in touch with myself. But it has really become more so of a calling. I feel that I really need to continue because I just want to be able to give the world some of what has been given to me. And Sophia Social Segments is my opportunity to do that. And, and I will tell you, it's really good. It doesn't matter how old your children are. I mean, I have a grandchild. Um, my children are grown, but it is so wonderful. So thank you for, for sharing that. Well, thank you for having me and so, allowing me to. Amy, do you have any more questions? No, I just wanted to thank you for coming on and sharing your story. I think it's an amazing story, and I'm really grateful to you for your service and for the podcast. I'm, I'm uh, on my phone right now signing up. Well, thank you. Do you have anything else that, that you would like to add? Probably just some words of encouragement um, as to everything that's going on in the world. Just to let everyone know that I think that we all want what's best for all of us. But I think that in everything that we do, that we need to consider the bigger picture. And the bigger picture for me is our future, and that's our children. So if we looked at our actions and what we choose to do, if we can question ourselves and say, would I want my child to do this, to say this, to be that way? And if you can answer and say no, then we need to, as adults, we need to be making some changes for ourselves. We need to be doing better as adults, as parents, so that we can prepare this world to be a better place for our children to live in. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. 
I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.